Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Thanks, Allie. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 130. That's where we'll continue our um, movement through the, uh, the Psalms of Lent. Um, as you know, we, uh, for, as a faith family, for the first time, have really kind of incorporated Lent into our traditions. Um, uh, Lent is something that's been around within the church for a couple thousand years now almost. And so, um, and very, people within our faith family have various histories with it, very exper- various experiences with it. But for the first time, corporately, we've said we want to begin to create some traditions and ways of entering into this season in which we, again, follow Jesus through the valleys of the shadows of death so that we might live with Jesus in the places of rest, besides still waters, right? So that we might walk with Jesus to the cross and tomb and then live with Jesus in Easter, the resurrection, life new always, right? And so we've purposely made the decision at the beginning of Lent to enter into this kind of journey into death. The death of self, old self, and the death of sin. Letting go of all those things that keep us from life. Life in its fullest. Life as God would have it for us, as God desires for us. And holding fast to the life that God says is ours in Jesus. And really, that's kind of the focus of Lent, right? It's this season of repentance, of, of, of foregoing some of the things that maybe we think um, that we need to survive in order to hold on to the thing which is our survival, God's life for us, right? And, and that's a big part of, of, of Lent, regardless of what tradition you're a part of, regardless of where you come out of. But, but it's not the only thing about Lent. The only characteristic of Lent isn't just re- repentance. That's a big part of it. But it's also this idea of um, catechizing. This idea of being formed. The word catechize, as we've learned, means to be taught or instructed. This 40 days, which is kind of a long time, right? Um, it feels like a long time. We still have seven days left or so, six, six or so days left. But it feels like we've been in Lent for a while, <laughs> right? And it feels like we've gone through some repetitions. We've said the same things over and over again. We're now in the fifth uh, of the six psalms, or six of the seven psalms of, of Lent. And they haven't sounded a whole lot different from one another, right? But every week we've entered into these things, entered into these psalms, entered into this spirit of letting things die in us so that God's life might rise out of us. And in so doing, we've kind of submitted to this idea of catechism, this idea of being baptized into life with God. Catechism literally means to sound down. The idea is to learn precisely into and out of the depths of something the deepest place of something, by sounds, oral and homotic, spoken and sung, of meaningful, nuanced repetition, to learn the foundational truths of our life in and with God, to say things and sing things over and over again in this season, 
that ground us not just in the basics, but in the depths of life with God. And these Psalms of Lent have, have been that for us, right? They've helped us move through journey with Jesus through this 40-day season. But again, the journey is kind of long. And if you're um, like me, um, um, sometimes you have a little bit of ADD along the way, right? Like sometimes the repetition kind of gets monotonous. Sometimes it feels like, where are we now? I'm kind of lost in the weeds because we've kind of been in the same spot all along. And in some way, the churches, they form these penitential psalms, these seven psalms that that lead us through Lent, um, I think had some intentionality in where they placed them. For instance, the psalm today is a psalm that, uh, that helps us, that helps us look back at where we've come and the lessons that we've learned. It, it helps us look back at what the lessons that we've learned thus far as a nuance, the nuanced repetitions, as it orients us toward the future of life beyond Lent. This psalm gives us an opportunity to take a few moments and sit and rest and go deep in the things that we've learned even as we begin to look forward and beyond this season. And so this morning, what we'll do, as we've done throughout this series, is what we'll do is we're just going to enter into Psalm 130 together. And so uh, we've, we've done it kind of different ways. We've done it through just me talking. We've done it through discussion. We've done it through discussion with one another. We've done it through Lectio and Divina and kind of the practice of just spiritual listening and all that kind of stuff. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk through Psalm, and I'm going to ask you some questions, and it's okay to respond, all right? So, uh, so again, the point of this psalm is to help us kind of learn the lessons, and learn the lessons deeply, to give us an opportunity, again, in the course of our day, in the midst of this season where we've chosen to enter in with Jesus into this journey, this pilgrimage to Easter, a chance to reflect deeply on the things that we've learned, Right? So the beauty of, 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 of what we get to do on Sundays, we get to step out of our normal rhythms into a place where maybe we have a little more room to contemplate, to reflect, to meditate, right? And so that's what we're going to do today. So Psalm 130, verse 1 and 2 says this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This has been a common cry from Psalm 6 all the way to to here, right? Lord, hear us. We're at the depths. We're in the pit. Sometimes there's a lot of description of that, of what it looks like and how we got there and what it feels like. But here the psalmist is just at the very bottom, at the place. And so the question I have for us, not so much is like, what does it look like to die or what what have we been dying to? We've asked that question off and on throughout the entire series. But rather, from where do we address God? Where is the psalmist addressing God? From what place is the psalmist crying out to God? It's not rhetorical, you can answer. The depths, that's right. It's it's not hard, it's not a trick question. (laughs) Um, I'm not trying trying to be smart, like it, it really is. So where does the psalmist cry out? Where is his prayer coming from? He says it right there in verse one. Out of the depths I cry to you. Out of the deep, dark place I cry to you. The Psalmitic scholar Walter Brueggemann once asked, he says, where, from where should the ruler of reality be addressed? Have you ever thought about prayer? Is that the, the, you're addressing the one who rules reality? The Psalms assume it, right? That God is the God of all things, that he's a creator and sustainer. 
where do we pray from? What position? What posture do we enter into the company of the king? That's like, what, what, I mean, when you think about the position and posture of prayer, from where do our normally, where do we think of, maybe you yourself, maybe what you've grown up in church with, or maybe what you think your neighbors and um, coworkers, where do they think? Where do we think we have to address God from? And what position and what posture? Kneeling? So a place of like adoration, bowing, bowing like respect? Humility? Recognizing him as something more than us, other than us, our own weakness or whatever, our need for him? Let me, let me ask you this. Have, have you ever thought of um, that you have to address God or that maybe not you have to address God, but maybe the best place to address God, the best time to address God, the best interaction with God, the best way to get God to hear you is from a place where your life is kind of figured out, where the observable outcomes of your life seem to be in step with what God wants, right? Have you ever thought, and maybe you haven't, but have you ever thought that because my life is out of step, God won't hear me? Because my life isn't the way it should be, God won't hear me. Have you ever thought that? I mean, I have. You may not have, but I have. I've thought that quite a bit. I think most of us, to some extent, if we're honest with ourselves, and I would say this of, of even most of our, um, our neighbors and friends and coworkers, is that in some way we think that we need to address the king suitably dressed, properly positioned, with a disciplined, well-modulated voice. I've got I've to have some things right and in order in order to be able to speak to God or for at least God to hear me and for the conversation to be fruitful, right? Yet we've learned, not just in this psalm, but in the psalms we've gone through, especially last week's psalm, that the cries from the depth, from the grave, are the voices to which God is particularly, peculiarly attuned. It's actually the cries from the depth, when we're at our lowest, in our darkest, that God's actually super attentive to, peculiarly to. That doesn't mean that you don't hear him when, you're, when things are going well. You don't have conversation with him when things are going well. It's just this truth that at our depth, God hears us. At our deepest, darkest place, God listens. He forges a binding between the heights of heaven and the depths of dying to old self and sin. Did you know that uh, um, um, today's Palm Sunday, um, <laughs> we had some palms Brung in earlier, yeah, right? And so, that's right, there's, there, Chris has got some palms right there, I'm gonna wave them for us. And so he's gonna do a little presentation later. It's a palm dance, it's great, if you wanna stick around for it. Um, <laughs> no, it's Palm Sunday, which is a pretty big Sunday, right? But like, it's, it's, this, it's the day in which the global church recognizes Jesus' procession into Jerusalem on top of a donkey, entering in as the Messiah, God's anointed, the King of the Jews, come to reclaim God's people from the bonds of their rebellion and their oppressors, right? But it's actually a really ironic day. It's ironic because everything that happens after that is completely opposite of what the people expected. The one who they hail as king, soon they will crucify as false. <laughs> a false god. So 
somebody who's come and not really the king. It's ironic because he's, this king will wear a crown of thorns, that his robe will be broken flesh and blood, that his throne will be two pieces of wood in which he's nailed. It's a day, today's the day we remember Jesus as king, but he's not the king like we thought. And his kingdom comes not in the way that we expect it or from the place we expect it. You remember in Psalm 102, we learned that the prayer from the depths of death is not only something you and I share in. We share that, right? We've learned through the Lenten season that, that sharing in our dying is an important thing. That we, we go through these deaths sometimes over and over again in life. And we help each other navigate through that, walk in that. The talking about our dying, remembering that we're not alone in our dying is a really important part of what it means to be God's people. To help us be ones who spur life in one another. But it's more than just that we share in the death of uh, sinners in a, in a broken world, but the prayer of Psalm 102 was the prayer of the Messiah himself, that he's the one who's praying in the midst of death, not just with us in death. We know God's with us wherever we go, right? Like we, we kind of, we, we tell ourselves that all the time, but he's more than with us. He's gone further than us. He's actually gone into death on our behalf. Remember Psalm 102, 23 and 24 says this. It says, he, the Messiah, answered him, that's God the Father, in this way of, in the way of his, the anointed one's strength. So out of the strength of God's anointed one, out of the strength of being the Messiah, out of what he's come to do, the action he's come to take, he speaks to the Father and says, declare to me the fewness of my days. Do not bring me up, summon me to action in the middle of my days. Your years are for the generations to end. Don't take me out of this before it's finished, is what the Messiah prays. Don't remove me from this dying, this going to the depths, until it's all done. The one in the midst of suffering asks not to be removed from the struggles, but to stay until it is all accomplished. In the closing verses, verses 25 through 27, is God responding to the Messiah of the Old you, Lord, Messiah, laid the foundation of the earth. This is God the Father speaking to the Son. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The plans I have, the generations that go on, what I have for my people, I have for you, because of you. God's response to the Messiah's prayer for the, for the Father's will through him his work yet complete. May the entire psalm Jesus' prayer for us. Not just Jesus' prayer with us. And the Father's response to the Son is nothing less than binding the suffering servant's wounds with the assurance of security and posterity for not only himself, but for those whom share in his dying and rising. The psalm ends. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. In the depths is where Jesus cried out to the Father on our behalf. In the depths is where the Father heard the Son. There's a poet that I love. Um, his name is Malcolm Guy, and he, he, um, he kind of describes, I think, what this first lesson is for us. He says this, one sinks lower still to hold you in his love. 
And though you cannot see or speak or breathe the weight of death upon you, right? The everlasting arms are underneath. No matter how far under the waves of sin and oppression and brokenness we feel, there is one deeper still. No matter how far we can think we've gone because of our sin, no matter how broken we believe we are because of the sin of the world, no matter how difficult life feels and the truth feels, there's one who's gone further than we will ever sink. We speak to God from that place, the place of depth, from a position of utter need and absolute affection. That's our first lesson. Not just because God's with us in the sense of he's everywhere, he's God, he's omniscient, but because he's actually gone deeper than we could ever go. He's suffered more than we can ever suffer for our sin, because of our sin. In the depths we are found, in the depths we are heard, in the depths we are seen, in the depths we are pulled up. And so we can pray with what feels like inordinate boldness to the ruler of reality. When we feel like God won't hear us, that's actually the place where God hears us most clearly. How amazing is that? How incredible is that? How important is that for us to learn in Lent? But it's not the only lesson. It's the first lesson that from the depths we're heard. We're heard because God shared in our suffering and went deeper than our suffering, is with us in the midst of our suffering. But that's the first lesson. The second lesson is in verse, verses three and four. Read with me. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. When we learn that we are bound to God in the depths, his binding forged in solidarity with us, held tight in the never-changing purpose of his affection, then we know clearly without excuse, without exaggeration or license, that if God should make iniquities, mark iniquities, no one could stand. No one could live. No one could justify their existence. But with him, there is forgiveness. So let me ask, when we think about our relationship to God, when we think about how God relates to us, how God feels about us, thinks about us, acts towards us, do we feel like he is someone who is going to crush us? Because we know our own junk, especially in the depths. I mean, think about it. In the midst of your darkest moments, in the midst of this season where we've said, hey, we want to die to self, um, to old self and to sin. Um, if you're like me at all, there's been moments where you're like, man, I, I don't deserve to be in your presence. There are times when I felt like my sin is so weighty that I feel crushed by it. And all the Lord wants to do is crush me because that's kind of what I want to do. Because I think that's what it deserves, Right? but do I see the Lord clearly in how he relates to me? Do I see that as we've learned in Lent, the atmosphere of Lent is forgiveness? Let me ask this. When you find yourself in sin, because again, Lent, we've chosen to enter this season to reflect on the, our own sins, things we hold to that are life-taking, not life-giving, ways that are off the, the path. Or when we find ourselves just in seasons of struggle and difficulty, 
where it feels like everything is against us, and sometimes we think that means that the Lord is against us, right? Do we relate to God first and foremost as ones who are forgiven, who know him as one who is forgiven, or do we fear him in a way that's like crushing? Because the psalmist mentions fear, but we'll talk about that in a second. How do we experience that fear? How do you experience the fear? In your brokenness, in your exposure, in like Adam and Eve type, like not clothedness and recognizing your shame, how do you experience, how do you feel the presence of the Lord? Do you hide from it? Do you try to cover it up? Do you try to, to avoid um, uh, interaction? You try to do just enough to cover yourself so it doesn't feel as shameful? Any, anybody? Andrew does. Thanks, Andrew. And so, um, but listen, we've, we've heralded this lesson from the very beginning. If you remember in Psalm 32, this, the very first, one of the first Psalms that we, enter, we entered into, um, the psalmist begins with this statement, or blessed are the ones whose iniquities are, um, are blotted out, whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are overlooked, like who are not held against them, right? Like, and it set this atmosphere for us that our, our experience with God, even in the midst of our own sin, not hiding anything from him, is forgiveness. But only in the depths with him does faith become sight. We believe it, we say it, we proclaim it all the time, right? We know that like, if God held things against us, we couldn't live. But do we believe that? Do we live that? Do we live as ones who believe, yes, that if God held it against us, we would die, but he doesn't. He doesn't. That even in the darkness is light to him. Here's the thing that, that I think the psalmist wants us to know. I think all these psalms want us to know. And this is, a, this is a, I think, so hard for Christians, myself included, right? So hard for us who have grown up in the church to some degree or another. Is that forgiveness is not a derivative act. God's forgiveness is not a derivative act. Again, the psalmist says, if you were to hold sin against me, I could not stand. But with you, there is forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a derivative act, not a result of some other act. It is the first act, the baseline, the promise from all else. It is, in the words of Brueggemann, genuinely ex nihilo, out of nothing. God created us out of nothing, and he forgives us out of the same power and purpose, affection, as in which he created. There is forgiveness and from it, everything else flows. It is not grounded in our actions or reasoned in our entitlement or explained in our self-justifications, even religious ones. It is the first act of new life of the new age. For listen to this, for there is one whose readiness and capacity is to cancel the iniquity and to begin again. In God, the one we relate to, the one that catches us in the depths, hears us in the depths, 
is the one who has a readiness, a desire, a delight, and the ability to cancel the iniquity and to begin again. This is the story of Scripture, right? But this is where we, the story of Scripture becomes our story, right? In the depths, when we're caught in the arms of God, and we know that he is ready and capable to begin new life in us. And listen to this, at every crucial turn in the life of God's people, that has been the court of appeal. That's what we appeal to. Listen, at every crucial turn in your life, in my life, the baseline, ex nihilo, first act of God has been the court of our appeal. That the means by which we plead for mercy is not out of our sorrow, not our regret, not our service, not our obedience, not our humility, not our religious acts, but the truth that we have nothing to stand on except his affection and forgiveness, and that is steady and firm. We have nothing else to stand on except that he has both the readiness and capacity to cancel our sin and start again. To, as David prayed in Psalm 51, to create in us a clean heart, to recreate us as ones who stand firm, not on our actions, but upon his actions to purge and to clean and to cleanse. And because our standing is firm, we don't have to live under the threat of God. Because our standing is firm, And again, what do we stand on? We don't stand on our actions. We don't stand on our sorrow. We don't stand on our obedience. We don't stand on any of those things. We stand only on the willingness and readiness of God to cancel the iniquity and to begin again. Because that's what we stand on, we have no reason to fear. But instead, we live in awe and wonder that manifests itself in trusting joyful obedience. That's what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is this reverential relationship, this relational reverence that comes out in our lives, not of we're afraid that God will crush us, but that we're in awe and wonder of the God who forgives us. And so we can trust him. We can obey him. We find life in him. That's why the proverb says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We don't really know how to act in the world and live in the world with one another until we get this. That what we stand on is God's readiness and capacity to cancel our iniquity and to begin again. Not our actions, not our sorrow, not our longing, not our affections, none of those things because all those things waver, right? But he doesn't. What he desires doesn't. Do we live out of threat that God will crush us, or do we believe and live out of what we've learned in the Psalms so far, that he delights in the truth and inward being, desiring to teach us wisdom in the secret heart, that he longs to show us the way we should walk, to counsel us rather than pull us long like stubborn mules. Or maybe to say it more eloquently with the words of Karl Barth, have we learned that God's very being is mercy? Have we learned yet that God's very being is mercy? 
The mercy of God lies in his readiness to share in sympathy the distress of another. A readiness which springs from his inmost nature and stamps all his being and doing. It lies, therefore, in his will. Springing from the depths of his nature and characterizing it to take the initiative himself for the removal of this distress that we feel, this death and dying that we feel. For the fact that God participates in it by sympathy implies that he is really present in its midst. And this means, again, that he wills that it should, be not, should not be, that our life should not lead to death, but that our life should lead to life in him. And that he wills, therefore, to remove all things that keep us from life. Because he wills to blot out our iniquities, the sin which is the source of our distress, is why we can face, acknowledge, confess, accept, and live through our dying self and sin. We know that our time in the tomb can never be ultimate. It can never constitute the bottom line, the end of the story. Our story, our neighbor's story, our coworker's stories, our friends' stories, that death is not the end of the story, but that life is the end of the story in him, because of him. And we have to see that. Do we see it? Because listen, like honestly, if, if the first two lessons are from where do we cry, cry out to God, where do we call out to God? In the depths, right? That's where he hears us. And do we see clearly that in the depths, not only has he gone further to hold us at our bottom place, to be the one who suffers with us, but to also be the one who rises us up, who longs to bring us out of this life, not because of us, by our actions, not based on our actions, but simply out of his ability and readiness to do so. If we don't get those lessons, then this is where we screw up the next one. <laughs> what do we do? Right? Now what do we do? If we don't get the first two, if we don't get the first two, the third one is where we kind of tend to screw up. And honestly, it's probably where the majority of our screw up in life of, as being the church, what happens, right? Where we start to do for God what only God can do. We start to treat others in a way that we don't recognize what God's done for us. And so we do not love our neighbor as God has loved us. We don't forgive as we have been forgiven, right? Until we get that, it's kind of hard to live life together. But inevitably, we all get to the question where we feel in the depths, the depths of our sin and situation and the depths of God's character and mercy. We all ask the question, surely there's something for me to do in the midst of this, right? So far, the only thing we've done is choose to die, to let ourselves die, to sin and self. But surely there's something for us to do, right? We've all asked that question. So what do we do? What do we do? Let's read together verse five and six and see if we can figure it out. I wait for the Lord. Literally, the, the next word says soul, but I wait for the Lord. My living being, my everything that I am, waits. My soul, and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchman for the morning. Yes, more than watchman the morning. So what do we do? What does the psalmist say that we do? Wait. Wait and what? There's, a, there's two words there. That's good. 
Watch, that's good. Maybe, maybe one other one too. Any other words that pop out? Wait, watch, hope, right? All those things seem a little passive, don't they? Fair, is that fair enough? Is anybody ever satisfied when you're told what to do? Um, when you want something, when you want to do something, has anybody ever been satisfied with, just wait, hope, watch? Anybody? No? You may, like, I, I know my kids are all the time, right? Just hold, hold on for that. Wait for that, guys. I know you really want to go do that thing. Just wait. Like they are completely satisfied and content, and they are happy to sit there and be full of life. Um, yeah, that's right, Lily. Lily knows it. She's, she's saying it. Um, not true at all. And so usually there's like a lot of back and forth after that. Like, how long do I have to wait? Oh, what do I have to wait for? Like, what am I going to do? Like, how, how are we going to do that? But why can't we go right now? Why can't we do that thing right now? Like, all those kind of things, right? Like, that, that is my experience uh, in my household with waiting. But, but there's something beautiful about what the psalmist is helping us try to figure out. Because he doesn't just give us things to do. The wait and the hope would not, like, it'd be hard to hold on to if all he said it was just, I wait, my, my living being waits, and I, and I hope in his word, and, and the promise and the, of what he said would be true, would come true, and that was all he said, but he, but he does something for us I think is really helpful. He doesn't just tell us what to do, he gives us a picture of someone to be. Who does he tell us to be? Who's the person in the, that he names? Like, a watchman, right? A watchman. Watchman, a watchwoman, a person who does very little. If you think about like a night guard at a, at a building or a business, right? They don't do a whole lot necessarily, right? But they're indispensable. There's a reason we have watchmen all over the place. In the ancient days, there's a reason there are watchmen on the guard towers of the city and around the city, right? They don't Rarely do they ever have to do much but they're really an indispensable role for they do two things, really. They stay alert to the dangers of the dark. They stay alert to it because the dark, like in the dark, some things happen, right? We get off course. Some things seem scary. Some, 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 sometimes there's things that sneak up on us, all that kind of stuff. So there's an attentiveness to the dangers of the dark that they're aware of, right? But they're not just attentive to what's going on in the dark. They're also ones who give witness to the dawn, they give witness to the dawn, the emerging light of the day's arrival. We learned this lesson in Psalm 102, that we share in dying, right? The first half of Psalm 102 is we share in our dying, but we also share of our rising together. That this is an important part of what it means to be the people of God, to regularly share where we are seeing God, God's dawn in each other's lives his recreation coming out of one another. Being watchmen and women with the clarity of sight, witnessing the dangers of the dark and the nearness of the dawn is our calling. Again, we can't be good watchmen if we don't see clearly, right? Because if we got bad eyesight, everything in the dark is scary. Everything in the dark is tricky. Everything looks like it's out to get us. My dad and I and my son, we hunt. And I'm sorry if that's offensive. Um, um, not really. We, like, we share our, our meat with everyone, so everybody's probably had some venison, and a good, good chunk of you guys have. But like, part of the, the fun part of hunting is you get out really early in the morning, and you get in a tree or a stand. But like, for that, that like, probably maybe 30 to 45 minutes before the sun comes up, before even dawn begins to break, right? 
And that 30 to 45 minutes, every sound feel, sounds like there's like a bear like right outside and like right next to you when there are no bears in Texas, right? But like in your mind, there's like something that's going to eat me is walking around right now when it's probably like an armadillo or a squirrel or like some little bird, right? But it sounds like this massive thing is coming towards you. And when the light comes up, it really is like a squirrel. Like that's all it was, like just kind of next to you in the tree. But for like those 30 minutes when you can't see anything, when there's no kind of understanding of what's happening around you, all the sounds seem really intimidating. And then your mind plays all kinds of tricks on you. Every little shadow and chains of shadow in front of you, you're like, oh, that might be the thing we're hunting. That, that might be it. Like, oh, like, oh, look, there's something big happening over there. And it comes, when the light comes up, it's just a tree, right? It's just a bush. Like, and all those kind of things, right? So if you don't have clear sight, if you don't have clear sight, if we don't go through lessons one and two, then we're really bad watch people. We fear everything. And we also don't recognize in the dark the things that look out of shape maybe aren't as out of shape as we thought they were. We judge really poorly and wrongly what's going on at the edge of light. This is why we tend to mess up and have to forgive one another a lot in the church. Because sometimes we don't get lessons one and two before we try to enact lesson three. New life initiated by God from the depths of depth of death and mercy leads us to be employed as watchmen and watchwomen, witnesses to the dawn, alert to its beginning in us and others as much as the emotions, imaginations, and dangers of the dark. And listen, I want to say this, and I want to say it really quickly because just for, for time, but hoping and waiting isn't passive. Listen, the, the terms that are used for wait and hope in these verses are synonymous. They're, they're basically the same word in, in the Hebrew. Um, and they're not passive at all. Like, if you know anything about the development of the idea of hope and the virtue of hope, even in, like, thought, human thought and history, even into Greek thought and history, like, hope is this very active thing. Both Plato and Aristotle talk about hope as being an initiator for action. And if you do not act upon hope, you aren't hopeful, you're just wishful. You're just, you're, you are just being naive and disconnected from reality. You're hoping, you're waiting for magic to think, magical things to take place. But if hope leads you to act in a certain way, to move towards and live in conjunction with the thing that you hope for, then it's a virtue. It's something, it's something that's actually a characteristic of you that forms whole and healthy life in you. Eugene Peterson, I think, helps us understand this clearly when he says this. He says, hope is based on the conviction that God is actively involved in his creation and vigorously at work in redemption. Isn't that lesson one and two? That God is actively involved in his creation in the depths. He died with us. He went lower than us. He's actively involved in his creation. He doesn't just speak it life and we exist and we just have to figure things out. He gets down into the muck, into the depths of his creation, becomes his creation, like us, but different than us, right? And he's vigorously at work in its what? Redemption. Not just its propitiation and sustaining, but its redemption. It's being made new. Hoping does not mean doing nothing. It means going about our assigned tasks. 
confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusion for the things that we do in life. That God is the author of our stories. And as the author, as we sang earlier, we don't write the ending, he does. And he tells us what it is. It's incredible, right? This is what hope means, to live our lives with confidence that God will provide the meaning and conclusions of our life of faith. Our life walking as employees and employers, as husbands, as wives, as roommates, as friends, as neighbors. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances of bogus spirituality, Peterson says. It's the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations, of scurrying and worrying, which is honestly like what a lot of life is these days, right? Hope is the opposite of that. But hope is also not daydreaming. It's not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or from our pain. Hope is a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do and a willingness to let God do it in his way, in his time. In our lives and in the lives of those around us, that God will be faithful to start and to finish what he starts in us around us, through us, for his glory. It's the opposite of making plans that we demand that God put into effect, telling him both how and when to do it. It's, the, the psalmist doesn't cry out, Lord, you have to show me mercy now. It's like, Lord, have mercy. I'm at my very depths. And at the very depths, the psalmist is caught, is known from underneath the arms grab him. He's heard and seen and having been heard and seen, he knows his own brokenness, but he also knows the forgiveness is the very nature of God. It's the only reason that he's caught in the first place. And so now what does he do? He lives out of the hope, the assurance, the confidence that what God starts in him, he will finish in him. And he'll do so for his children, for his neighbors, and for his friends. So he can be one who watches clearly for the dangers of the dark, knows, hey, that sound might really be a mountain lion climbing out there, right? But it's probably a squirrel. Who, who recognizes even in the dark what is a danger and what's not. But even more so, calls out when the light comes and where the light's breaking in. Those are our lessons we've learned so far in the Psalms of Lent. But like I said, this psalm gives us one more. It doesn't just help us answer from where do we address God, how do we see God clearly, do we know what to do? These are the lessons that we've, we've been learning over the last six weeks together. But there's one more, and we've alluded to it throughout, but only now does it become really explicit. So let's read together verses seven and eight. O Israel, Hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him, with him is plentiful redemption. In the RSV, it's translated plenteous redemption. It's a fun word. Plenteous. But it sounds better than plentiful. Plentiful, we just kind of read over. Plenteous, this plentitude, a great multitude, a never ending abundance of redemption. And he will, verse eight, 
redeem, ransom Israel from all his iniquities. The last lesson we have to learn in Lent, the last question we have to answer is, are we confident in our future? Are we confident in our future? Listen, all the Psalms have been moving towards this, right? This is the beauty of Lent. This is why it's an important season, right? So it's, it's, a, cap, it's a capped time, right? 40 days from the beginning to the end. It's a pilgrimage, and a pilgrimage is not a journey. A pilgrimage is you know where your starting point is, you know where your ending point is. You know you're working towards something, right? And where we've been working, where we've been moving through this pilgrimage through Lent to Easter Sunday is an ascent. It's a steady climb towards assurance. This is what the, the goal is. This is what the goal of Lent is. In fact, this psalm in particular is not just a general psalm ascending to that point, but is actually one of the 15 psalms of ascent. Songs of ascent. These songs of ascent are sung, were sung by God's people um, um, post-exile on their own pilgrimages to Jerusalem during the religious feasts and holidays, including Passover. As the people traveled, because most people, most of the Jews, a lot of the Jews didn't live in Jerusalem. As they traveled to Jerusalem, they would sing Psalms 120 through 134 on their way, a way of movement towards the place of God, to being in the place with God, to remembering what God has done in expectation that what God has done in the past, he will do again in fullness. Now that we're assured of ascending towards, what is it exactly that we're going to? So let me ask you this. So in, in uh, your understanding of repentance and what it is that we've kind of been doing over Lent, I think it's important for us to kind of make sure we know where we're going and what God wants for us, right? So what does God want for us at the end of Lent? What does he want for us at the end of repentance? What does he want for us at the end of confession? What does he want for us? Have you ever thought that? What does he want? You can answer. You're not, it, 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 it won't be too wrong. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. What? Renewal. Okay, yeah, renewal. Wholeness. Connection to him. Redemption. These are great. These are good, true words. Keep saying them. What does he want for us? What does God desire for us at the end of this? On the back side of the tomb, life. What kind of life? Eternal life? What? Maturity. Yeah, a growing up, right? Uh, an ability to actually grow up, right? To, to be, if we're ones who are living and reborn, to actually have life. Those are all good and true words. The word that sums it up is freedom. 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 A life in God in which we get to live as God made us to live with him. Free from our sins that bind us and hold us and entangle us. Free to be open to him and to one another in a way that brings out life. Free to love one another, as Paul would say in Galatians, to be led by the spirit, to follow the spirit, and the only subjection to be subjected to love for one another, not being against one another. This is the life that... that we're moving towards. It's this idea of being freed from imprisonment, right? We saw that last week in Psalm 102. Psalm 102, uh, 19 and 20 says this. 
God looked down from his holy height. From the heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of who? The prisoners. Again, the Psalms have been moving this way. This is the first time in the Psalms of Ascent that we go from being ones who are dying in our own sin and in the sins of the world to prisoners. That, our, that, that this life that we live apart from God, out of sync with God, on a different path than God, is a prison in which we groan for something other than prison. And God, God, listen, God hears from heaven. He hears the groans of the prisoners. He looked at earth so that he could hear them, intentionally, right? And not just hear them, but to then do what? To set free those who were doomed to die. To set us free. To live life free from the threat of God. Free from the less than life of our own sins. Free from a world that would show us a different way than the way that's true, right? Free to love because we're loved. Listen, the words redemption and redeem in the final words of Psalm 130 mean ransom. We read them as redemption, but the actual words in Hebrew are ransom. They mean to buy back, to purchase from slavery, to purchase from the possession of another one, to purchase for another one, freedom. That's what they mean. They are words of the Exodus and of God's resources for ransom. His resources to pay for us to be free are endless. Plenteous. So how do we live? If if we are confident in our future, what marks our living? Trust. Hope. Fear, right? Fear the Lord. Awe and wonder. Living by the conviction that God will be who he is and do what he said and will do it again and again and again, abundantly, plenteously, what he has already done until it is finished. Fully and always. Because we know we've been hurt at the depths. We've been held at the depths. That we stand not on anything that we and ourselves possess, but all of his character and actions on our behalf. And because we look to the dawn, we no longer have to fear the dark, and we can live in the conviction, in the joy, in the trust, in the fear of the Lord. That is our future. To be ones who, at the end of this journey, this pilgrimage, Stand with the Lord beside still waters and green pastures, even if life around us is anything but. Ones who are free. That's our future. Or in the words of the author of Hebrews, ones who lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Our faith is Jesus' faith. The faith of Jesus is our faith. He started it, he finishes it. What would life look like if we lived that way?
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons that we are trying to learn in Lent. Lord, we know and confess even, Father, Lord, our, um, sometimes we're slow learners. I'm a slow learner for sure. But Father, I pray what has begun, what we've said over and over and over and over and over again in this season, what your scriptures have said over and over and over and over and over again this season, this nuanced rep- repeating of sound spoken and sung would form us, teach us who you really are so that we might be ones who live the life you really want for us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your son who wouldn't, wasn't satisfied and won't be satisfied until it is all finished. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Welcome to Stan.